You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you teach yeah. social studies, and so I feel like I've got an important question for you. Uh, the answer is yes. You don't even know the question. Now I'm going to no, reformulate I'm, the question. Whatever, whatever we're going to do. You said yes, and the question is, can I have all your money? So thank you, and just send it to me in like big cash bags. The real question, Michael, never say yes before you know the question. The real question is, as a social studies teacher, are you hopeful for democracy? I have a hard time like divorcing myself as a political actor today and me as a social studies teacher looking at my students. I feel like right now we're in such this weird place where I don't feel as hopeful as I once did. And so it's hard for me to like really answer that. Like, sure. The youth are are fantastic, but I feel like we're in such a negative space with our politics where everything has become this zero sum. If you're not with us, you're for us. And it was different maybe during the Cold War when the enemy was like, like when we're in the Cold War, the enemy was like the Soviet Union, I guess. Right. Uh, But but now now it seems like the enemy is anyone who doesn't think just like me. And that's scary. Yeah, the increasing polarization, right? When we, we, we talk about in society, I think, it, you know, a lot of people have talked about it. I think, I think one thing our episodes have made me think about too is always think about is this just my perspective as kind of a, you know, upper middle class privileged white guy, right? Who mm-hmm. is now like disturbed by our democracy when, you know, people of color have had a lot of reason to be disturbed with our democracy for a long time. So I sometimes also wonder, you know, are these things that we're fearful about things that that some citizens in our society have always been dealing with and so then i I check myself i'm like you know am i then really committing myself to do anything about not just the things i'm concerned about but the things that other communities are concerned about too and have been for a long time so right there's that uh that martin luther king saying that like the arc of like history like arcs towards justice and i know i'm not getting it right but i feel like sometimes it is one step forward two steps back i feel like things have just gotten really negative and we've moved so far backwards with like clean water like is that really a, right like, and so it's not that i'm not hopeful it's just that right now i am tired and i don't know when this like extreme polarization is going to end. You know, and I think that's kind of part of the authoritarian playbook, right? Is the, is to wear us out. Endless controversies, new controversies, new tweets every day. And it kind of wears us out. So beyond just thinking about how kind of depressing and exhausting, I think the news cycles are today, and, and a lot of the threats we face in our democracy. I think I remember the last time I felt really hopeful was probably 2008 
you know, during, yeah, like during Obama's campaign. I mean, oh, absolutely. I was really excited and I know his campaign speeches had kind of a generic tone and I probably had a bit of, you know, naivete at that time. Um, but I was you know, 28 working in a nonprofit. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and and being involved in politics then found, felt really you know exciting and a lot of and there was even the po- hope posters. Remember the hope posters? Yes. Those are like a big thing. And my um, department chair, who we had on in in episode three, and I'm sure I've said this in other episodes, but she said something really wise to me once. She said, "Democracy's messy." You know, democracy's messy and. And I have to remember that it's not the kind of campaign speech that we get. It's, you know, but yeah. It's like making a cake with a toddler. But it's not supposed to be this messy. (laughs) It feels too messy now. So, Michael, how do we get our hope back? Do we need, do we need a guest to maybe? Let's just invite a guest in so we can kind of discuss this a little bit more with. So, you know what? We would like to welcome into the podcast a guest who's going to. Give us hope again. We'd like to welcome in Dr. Sarah Stitzline. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Here, you're, you're giving me a big task with bringing you hope. Yes. <laughs> we hope that you're up for it because, yeah. You're our nice. only hope. That's all we've got. Your only hope for hope. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. So I'm a philosopher of education, and I'm most concerned with the relationship between schools and democracy. And of course, part of that is how we prepare good citizens in our social studies classrooms in particular. I use political philosophy, and especially the philosophy of American pragmatism. So here's John Dewey coming to the rescue to respond to what's going on in our political lives and our communities today to try to offer some solutions through schooling and education. Uh, More formally, I'm a professor. I teach education and philosophy at the University of Cincinnati. And I'm the editor of the journal Democracy in Education, and I'm the president of the John Dewey Society. Wait, is Democracy in Education an open access journal? It is. No It's kidding. all about democracy. So we, we believe strongly in bringing our, our knowledge, our exchange, our dialogue to the public, and so anyone can participate. And you're the president, and I, I, I apologize for jumping over that, you're also the president of the John Dewey Society. We talked about John Dewey one time. We did. And if you missed it the first time, that was episode 70, John Dewey but and I Social Studies. I'll go back to it because I feel like I imagine that your conversation about John Dewey is going to be much better than Dan and me. I will confess that I picked up a Dewey joke that I heard in one of your previous podcasts. <laughs> and I can't remember if it was Michael or Dan, but one of you said, um, just Dewey it. And mm-hmm. I, that's now become part of my lexicon. And when I'm standing at the podium as president of John Dewey Society, let's just Dewey it. Learning by doing. That's my, you, Dan? that's my other Damn. one. That's my other Dewey pun. Remember when I just talked about other Deweys? Yes, you did. You just got <laughs> off track. All I remember is Dewey Duck. That's the only other Dewey I remember. So, yeah, yeah if you yeah. did miss episode 70 with Daniel Steckert, it was actually an ep- excellent episode. And his book oh, he's is fantastic. worth picking just, up. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, maybe, maybe we have a lot to learn still. So. Uh, I do recommend highly for people that have never checked out Democracy in Education. It's actually a really cool journal. I've long said that 
And when you were coming on and I realized you were the editor of it, I was very excited because it actually does promote dialogue around issues, right? People write articles and then people actually respond to those articles like substantively, sometimes like five, six responses I feel like I've seen before. Um, so it creates a real conversation, which you just rarely see. It's kind of like YouTube if YouTube wasn't the worst place on earth. It's and also a nifty, we found some nifty ways for pre-service teacher educators to use it. They're using it in their classrooms to kind of engage in like a back and forth. So it's not just like, here's one article, take it or leave it. But here's like, you know, how a practicing teacher responded or here's how a scholar responded. So it kind of engages the dialogue for students who are preparing to be teachers. That's great. That is really cool. Well, so, and the other reason that we're having you on today is because you wrote a whole book which is really impressive to me. And I think you've written more than one book and you're in charge of lots of stuff. So you apparently are way better at accomplishing your to-do list than I am. And so your book is called Learning How to Hope, Reviving Democracy Through Our Schools and Civil Society. Can you tell us about this project and, and you know where you think it's helping us to get to? Sure, well, I'll give you a little background because it grows out of just what you guys were talking about when you kicked off the episode. And that is some feelings that I was having way back in the 2008 election and some of the feelings that many of us have today as we're kind of swinging between hope and despair. Back in the 2008 election, I'll confess, I, I was raised as a Republican in a Midwest farming family, and I got kind of swept up in a new courtship with Democrats at the time. You know, I kind of got on the hope train that Obama was driving. I was excited about something, a, a leader that seemed quite different, who was inspiring, and I, I took to the streets to take up a call he made. Uh, if you'll recall, the day before his inauguration, he called for a national day of service. And I thought, hey, what a great spirit. I want to get on board with that. I want to be a part of the solution, you know. So I went to the streets to give of my time. And I showed up with my then husband, who was wearing a one of those iconic Hope t-shirts with Obama's face on the front. And oh. someone handed me a sign. I didn't create this sign, but it just said, believe on the front, and they handed me the sign. And then right as they did, of course, a newspaper reporter's there and click, click, takes my picture. Oh, and this wow. picture ends up on the front page of the newspaper in the tiny town in New Hampshire where I was living at the time. And it was, you know, really emblematic of how I was feeling. I was feeling hopeful. I was feeling active. I was out there. But it didn't last long. Kind of like Michael was saying, within a few months, I found myself back at home, feeling a little disappointed, struggling to really believe that things were really going to change and quite disappointed with some of the changes that Obama was putting forward. And of course, we know that on the heels of the election in 2008, as well as 2016, we've seen these big swings between hope and despair amongst our polarized citizenry. And even now we're seeing folks who are strong Trump supporters in 2016, many of whom are now kind of questioning, hmm, not so sure about Trump either. And so a lot of us are kind of throwing our hands up in the air and saying, oh, what happened to hope? And how do we sustain that hope as we go forward from one election to the next? So when I wanted to write this book, I wanted to respond to those kinds of shifting emotions that we experience and to figure out how do we make hope more sustainable than just something during election years and 
campaign slogans and rallies that we attend, but something that can actually generate long-term momentum in democracy. I think that's important and expectations are important too, you know, because when I think about it, I'm like, what president have I ever been really satisfied with? Because I don't want to make it sound like I think Obama was like a bad president because when I'm looking back, I'm like, oh, well, it's probably better than any other one <laughs> as far that, that I can think of, right? So William I'm, Henry Harrison, I think, had a pretty stellar career for his presidency, except for, of course, his stupid decision. But, you know, yeah, you know, his decision to stand in the rain for a speech and then die. But no one ever said like, oh, the policies of William Hay Harrison are terrible, you know? I don't know. He was a bad example for the youth. Think about all the youth in society that are standing in the rain getting pneumonia. True. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really hard. And I think a lot of politics are about, you know, they can be about compromise and trying to get things done. But then they're also about values and what and what we believe in and and so it is a challenge, I think, and being a president especially. I mean, I think we all want the president to, to you know, hold all of our values and accomplish all the things we want. But it's a, it's, it's very difficult, and and the system that we have that has been set up was made that way, right? It made it very difficult to affect change. And there maybe there's parts of our system though that need to be reformed. So, so how do, how do we address it? How do we do? You, what's your advice for people to? Have some kind of faith in democracy. And I think about a democracy that works for everyone because that's another challenge I think we're increasingly seeing is that um, a lot of groups are increasingly demanding and their issues are being taken up by more politicians. And some people are just rejecting the changing of America, that more, more groups are saying we should have equity um, across our society. And I, I don't know. I feel like that's more vocal today than it has been in the past. And so some of the consensus in the past may have been around only some group's concerns about the world? Well, a part of the problem is that we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket. In other words, putting all of our investment in just the president to be kind of a savior figure, like this messianic figure who's going to come to our rescue, you know, embody our values, achieve everything that we want, and somehow systematically also achieve everything everyone else wants in the country and everyone's going to be happy. It, it's just not possible. It's not feasible. not going to work. So part of what we have to do is understand that hope is not just something we have during the election year where we just cast a ballot and then, you know, turn it over to someone else to take it from there. It's something that we have to act on beyond just that casting the ballot. We have to sustain it. And part of that sustaining it is becoming more and more difficult in this kind of polarized life that Michael was talking about earlier. You know, when we struggle to get along with our peers, to talk across the aisle, to find points of consensus or, you know, common ground, it's hard to imagine how we can have a thriving democracy. And I think part of this comes out in the way democracy is struggling right now. So we know we've have got hyperpartisanship, we have, you know, increasing inefficiency and struggles, you know, to get work done, you know, Washington seems to just go around in circles sometimes without really making much progress. Uh, but we also see citizens struggling. So we know there's data coming out using the World Values Survey that shows that citizens are increasingly cynical. They believe they're unable to influence public policy, and they're more willing to turn toward authoritarian alternatives rather than democracy. And those are alarming trends. That means we've got a lot of work to do right now to revive democracy. 
And I know, so Dewey, that's what Dewey was about, right? He tried to apply pragmatist ideas, you know, which really kind of right reject these ideal platonic notions that there's just one way to do thing, do things and think of our world as transactional and that we have to continually consider that it's not just we who make change, but we, we who are changed, right? It's this kind of ecological environments we live in. And so he thought that way about democracy, right? That um, I think the quote in your first chapter of your book, which I pull, I went and downloaded the PDF to the chapter, which you can get. And I like the very first quote, it's the very idea of democracy. The meaning of democracy must be continually explored afresh. It has to be constantly discovered and rediscovered, remade and reorganized. And so that, I mean, that kind of makes sense that, you know, it when we think of democracy as just elections, Oftentimes we don't. And I know I've gotten a lot of hope from being very involved at the municipal city level, you know, because like sometimes we can make changes like we can get things done at that level. And um, I was standing with Amber Briggle, episode 39 guest who came on and talked about transgender uh, students rights. And we were arguing for an equality ordinance in our city. And like, you know, the person running for the next mayor stopped and talked to us. Other people in the city council stopped and talked like we talked to the people who are really in positions of power, which is so out of reach, you know, when you think of, we talk so much about federal level. And so I do think about how, of course, we can't ignore the federal level, but we often don't see these other places in society, our communities, our city level, you know, even the, the our workspaces as democratic spaces to our classrooms. Well, certainly you're right about how Dewey sees it. And you picked a great quote from the book, which like you mentioned, is open access. So go download it. It's out there. It's easy to get. Technically, you um, picked the great quote for the book. But. <laughs> it out to, to, to share with everyone. Um, you know, Dewey reminds us that democracy isn't something that just happens far off in the state capitol or at Washington, D.C., but it's something that we have to embody every day in our personal lives. And I think that your examples from your local community and doing your local political work is, is emblematic of the power that we do have. And so when citizens feel cynical, it's often not that big picture, far away, high level. And if we can turn instead to looking at the local and what we can accomplish in our local communities, we we shift the, the, the lens so that we start to become more focused on what we can achieve as individuals working together alongside those in our communities. And that's really where Dewey would start. He would call that a small public. So the way a small public forms is when you're in a community and you realize you have some shared problem. There's something you want to fix or address together. So like you standing there with your colleague addressing transgender equity issues, you know, you come together around that shared problem. And you start to articulate what's going on here. What's wrong? What can we do to make things better? And then that small public gathers, right? You start calling in other friends who are like-minded or share similar concerns. You start gathering information. And this is where the whole Dewey and inquiry process happens, that you actually engage in like scientific empirical study, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in my community. Um, what are the problems and what are the resources for fixing it? And then you're working together to try out alternatives. You know, you use imagination and creativity to come up with solutions and then you test them out. There's that pragmatist spirit, right? The the kind of practical, let's give it a try idea. And for Dewey, you know, it's really about meliorism. And this is where my idea of hope traces to. So 
Meliorism is the belief that through human effort, things can improve. You know, if we look at the whole course of human history, we see that change over time and that we can pick up where others have left off and continue that trajectory forward. Right. Like the arc thing, right? How history is slanting towards the good. And I'm doing that wrong, right? Yeah, you're close. So it's the famous quote is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That's it. That's it. So you know it most likely from Martin Luther King. He was actually borrowing it from Theodore Parker before him. And, you know, blinking back to our old president of hope, it was actually enshrined on the floor of the Oval Office that was inscribed in the rug of Obama's Oval Office. So that pragmatist spirit of meliorism is in that quote. It's the idea that, you know, we have to keep working together to bring about progress. It's not just going to happen on its own, but it entails human effort. So before I bring this into my classroom, I would like to feel hope. So step one, identify a problem. Step two, find people who also identify the same problem. No, we identify it together. So we have a curb. All I want is a all I want is a, a curb cutout. And Dan, this is for you. So here's what I'm, I'm thinking, thinking about yes. doing, just to give myself hope. I'm gonna park out there with my care, like with my stroller for my kid, and I'm just gonna wait there until people walk by, and, and then I'm gonna say, "Hey, what, what should we do about this?" this? And, and then we'll figure out how to make it better for all of us. Is that a good way to make neighborhood friends? Because we just moved in. <laughs> I think everyone can bond around curb cut shortcomings in our communities, right? I think that's a great topic, Michael. Give it a try and let me know how it works. I actually don't know how many curb cut friends I've made, but I'll come up to Massachusetts if it doesn't work and hang out with y'all. If it's more than just me, I think maybe more people will gather. I like that. I like that. I like the idea, too, of small publics, right? Yeah, small groups, small publics. And they're those small people who form around that shared problem or shared concern that they have. And, you know, it's not often, it's it's like it's a political group that comes together. It's not like, okay, we Republicans Mm -hmm. gather together to decide X. It's more of X is happening. Oh my, what are we going to do about it? Let me gather together with my neighbors, my friends, others who are upset about it or affected by it and figure out what we're going to do. That comes to what a lot of us see as the essential civic question. What should we do? What should we do? That's the question that guides small publics. It's the question that guides how we start hoping together. It's the question I think should guide our classrooms. And I think that Michael could come to, you know, you could come together in your in small publics around your curb cuts, but it definitely can see how we can come together in small publics in classrooms, right? It's set up very well for that. I think um, I've mentioned this a lot of times recently. The curriculum is often our biggest barrier because the curriculum tells us we have to study these things that sometimes don't matter to kids or, well, actually teachers usually like them. But and so the thing is, we're not we don't have the curricular space oftentimes. And I think that's the whole point of the C3 framework is to identify ways to tie in both, right, to tie in issues in history and geography and these other issues with things we actually care about and questions we actually care about to kind of make a difference. But it's still it's still a real challenge. And I also think small public should specifically apply to kindergarten classes. 
Well, you're totally right, Dan, that, you know, that is a struggle that we face because if we're going to start with real inquiry into real problems, so things that really matter to students, it's often, you know, not tied to a lot of our curricular standards. But that's not to say we need to throw out that real content that we have to get across in our socialized classrooms, because I want to say, you know, we need working historical knowledge, for example. So if students don't understand what's been tried before, what's worked, what hasn't, they don't have resources to draw on to come up with creative, imaginative ways to solve the problems we face now. You know, otherwise we end up reinventing the wheel over and over again or, you know, falling prey to problems that we've already done in the past. We don't learn from our mistakes, if you will. So, you know, a history teacher who can you know, arm students with examples from the past of what has been tried and what might work and what might not, that's a way that we help our students to move forward to figure out what do I hope for and how can I achieve it? You know, what resources do I have to help me fulfill this better life or this better solution that I envision? And it's, it seems like the, the challenge is to find hope with also understanding there's going to be challenges and disappointments and shortcomings. Because I think that that's the reality of democracy, right, is that's going to happen. But also then to identify that, you know, these problems are disproportionate oftentimes, right? We can't, you know, I always think of, of Howard Zinn's A People's History in his first chapter. He talks about, you know, when we often reference we in the United States, that, that we're often pulling together these mythical shared interests when really the most important issues in our society are about conflicting interests and conflicting values and conflict. And so we, when we uh, talk about we, we often don't always see, but in small publics, it becomes more possible to find common areas that people care about. And so I really think that's interesting. And I think another thing that makes it so hard to be hopeful is the way national politics and the current president are able to drive the conversation around partisan polarizing issues. You know, and, and everyone takes a stance and takes their sides and goes to their polls, I guess. Right. Um, and and the thing is, as many of our the issues we really do face in our society have are, are not the issues being discussed on the nightly news. And so I think part of it is about taking the narrative back. Right. To redefining what the questions are. I know for me, I've tried to really think, be thoughtful about what news I'm intaking so that those 24 hour cycles don't like dominate my day that I can think about other things because I'm, I'm keeping up with stuff. I like, I think I mentioned something previously. I like the long form articles, right? I like the ones that takes journalists several days to, to write as opposed to just reading the, the tweet reactions to another tweet. Well, part of that taking the narrative back, though, is also about storytelling, right? So this ability to tell how things could be different, how things could be otherwise. This for, for Dewey, for Maxine Green, for other philosophers, that's the idea of freedom in a democracy, how things could be otherwise. And so reclaiming that narrative is also about how do we create a new and different vision of our lives? And part of hoping is doing that. It's working in those small publics to tell a different story of what our lives can and should be, how they can be different from this polarized rhetoric that we hear and from the negative attacks that we see so common on the national level, to work at our local communities, on our streets, in our schools, to put forward something new and better. So, so I, I like the way that sounds, but I'm still a little bit jaded. Sometimes like, like I, I get, get that, you know, I can be hopeful here and there, but how do you make it more of like a habit? Yeah. 
And really, you know, that's what I'm trying to argue in the book, that it needs to be a habit. It has to be a proclivity, a disposition, something we do repeatedly over and over in order to sustain us. Because otherwise, you know, it's it's short lived and it doesn't hold up. It's not sustainable to make it a habit. We have to practice it again and again. We have to see that it works. So it involves kind of cultivating and nurturing it in our classrooms, letting students have opportunities to solve real world problems, to see that they can and are capable of doing those things, to actually see deliverables, real tangible products of their efforts so that they feel the confidence to continue to go on trying, even when they encounter obstacles or problems or become, you know, face moments of jaded negativity and cynicism. And, you know, I'll also note that this is not all you know, happiness and sunshine kind of stuff. Um, you know, f folks joke with me, if you could see me through your speakers, you'd see that I have on red glasses. I'm the rose-colored glasses lady, right? The Pollyanna-ish thing. It's much more than rose-colored glasses because what we see right now at the national level, we see a lot of frustration. We see people taking to the streets in dissent, voicing their concerns, being upset with how things are going. What's happening here is something that's kind of interesting. It's, it's counterintuitive because hope actually leads to dissent. When we focus on what we envision that could be better, we often find ourselves dissatisfied with how things are right now in the present. But when we harness that discontent and we make it into a more proactive form of democratic dissent, we start to move from just being complaining or jaded or negative or cynical into actually learning how we express dissatisfaction in a way that changes democracy, whether that's changing the system, like through formally changing laws and policies, or it changes our daily way of going about democracy so that we learn how to cross the divide, come up with common ground, put forward alternatives and not just, you know, remain complacent with the way things are around us. So it's that kind of dissent that lets people name the problems they see in the world around them, call for collective action. So, you know, kind of bringing together those small publics, creating them and then engaging them in action and creativity to try out solutions. Can you give us an example of how this might look like in the classroom? Sure. So, you know, in a classroom, you're you're going to want to take on real problems, things that matter to the students, because it's about feeling that connection and that value in what's undergoing in order for students to start to nurture those habits of hope. It's also about engaging that question I said of what should we do? So it's about starting your K-12 social studies lesson with what should we do about X? where that X is something the kids are facing, some struggle, some concern, some issue. It could be big, it could be small. Um, I've done this with students on everything from, what should we do about having to pay our parking fee of $50 when our parking lot is falling apart and there is not enough space for our cars? It's not fair, it doesn't feel right. Students, you know, that when you're 16 and you're shelling out 50 bucks to park your car at school and you're parking in a giant pothole, you're not sure what can I do about this. So turning to something like a social studies classroom where you have a teacher who can arm you with 
knowledge of the system. You know, who do you go to to express your frustrations? How do you use the language of power to demand change, to, you know, put forward your solutions or to articulate the problem better? And then to actually enable those students to act on it. It's not enough just to talk about it. Like in classrooms, we actually have to do it, to try it out. Um, so part of being the good teacher there is giving the students the tools and the space and the know-how to actually put it into practice. To me, part of that is having democratic schools, right? So often students have little voice or ability to make change in their own schools. Student government is more about planning social events than it is about helping to have input in the structures of schooling and what they think about the big issues the school faces. So, yeah, I would really, I've thought about that a lot. I would love to be in a school where students' voices were taken seriously, where they were included in conversations, they had a voice in, in, in everything happening in the district. So I think that's one way, right? That's a very democratic, our schools are, are democratic spaces too, hopefully. Yeah, and part of that, you know, our role as teacher educators, myself and Dan and others who are teaching teachers, is to figure out how do we model that for our upcoming teachers? How do they see what it looks like to participate in democratic spaces so that they know how to create those kinds of spaces in their schools where students do feel heard and have those tools to engage democracy? So what other advice do you have for educators, particularly social studies educators, looking to enact some of these ideas and also just to access your book and go in and you download each chapter, right? I think so they make sure they know it and see it's, the, it's not the whole book up, right? You, you go to the site and download each chapter. But so if they're going to go reference this book and make change in their classroom, what advice do you have for them? Well, there's a new link. So now you don't have to download it chapter by chapter. Now you can just go to get one PDF. So it's all there as one big PDF now, just Whoa. for FYI. Yeah. Much easier to download now. Nice. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll say a little bit, you know, about how teachers might use this right now in the context of the 2020 election, because a lot of teachers, students, all kinds of people are struggling to make sense of this current atmosphere. You know, how do we not just have hope that gets tied to particular candidates, but that pushes us through the election and well beyond. So, you know, as we're talking, especially at the high school level with our students about the election, you know, we have to talk with them about what should they look for in presidential candidates. So we want to find people who are wanting to nourish this spirit of hope. So these are candidates that emphasize possibility, the future. It's not the gloom and doom kind of candidates. They're candidates who want people to take action. So it's not just the strong man who's going to solve it all for us, but the one who is calling forward, you know, folks to step up, to get involved, um, not just counting on, you know, the leader to get things done. I think teachers can help students see how it's not about investing all of your energy into one candidate, but rather getting involved with other small pu public, small groups of people who have shared concerns as the candidates are putting forward. So if you know, you know, folks are excited about Bernie Sanders because of his ideas on free education, what we want to talk to students about is not just getting behind Bernie, but we want to talk about how do you get behind free education? How do you work with others to fulfill that goal so that it, the focus is less on the particular candidate and more on the plans and the agendas 
and the policies that we can move forward, that we can get started through their actions as budding citizens. You know, how can they pick up on and pursue those? And then we want to talk to students about how do they look for candidates who listen to constituents, who are listening to the youth about what youth want and see and need in life, and to take up those experiences as they craft their plans for change. So that it's not just about adults far off in Washington, D.C., but real youth and real communities across the country. And then I think probably the last tip I would say is they're going through the 2020 election is, you know, to challenge students that when they wake up on November 4th, 2020, that they're going to get out of bed ready to make our country better regardless of who is elected. That commitment to action is going to bolster our habits of hope, our proclivity to act and to hope with others. And that's what's going to sustain our students well beyond 2020. It's not just going to stop in November, but it's going to be about a way of life in that Dewey and spirit that carries you forward. I wish that hope was like coffee, something you can have every morning and it makes you feel good. But I guess by getting in your small publics, that's kind of like it, it percolates your own activity. That's right. Power. And you get to see those people hopefully every morning to get your day started and going. I think the small publics are like an espresso shot. Ooh. That's, that's too much coffee metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you do want to find common grounds when you're, whenever you're coming together. Oh, very nice. nice. That, was, that was very well done. I think that's Dr. Stitzline. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. And we just really appreciated you having us on and giving us back a little bit of our hope. Happy to be here. Now, where can our listeners find you or your work online, including, of course, your book? So you can go right to the Oxford University Press website. Just search for my name or the title of the book, Learning How to Hope. And you can download for free uh, the full book right there on the website. And just searching for me at the University of Cincinnati, you can find out more about my other books I've written and some of my ideas for socialized educators on how we can improve democratic education. Um, I've written extensively, especially about the concept of political activism and political dissent and how do we get students more active in political life. And we will be sure to have all of that on our show notes. So if you need links to any of these things, everything will be in our show notes so you can find it there. So thank you again for joining us. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We're all about sharing the learning of the Vision Education Podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to join our small public, tweet us at Vision of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Vision of Education Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. You know what gives us hope? Five-star reviews. And if you give us one, we will give you hope by reading it on the air. It also gives hope to the algorithms that help people find this podcast. And we, of course, would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for editing these episodes for us. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Thinkspeed. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.